Today's episode of Dog Nation Daily is brought to you by Pella Window and Door of Georgia, viewed to be the best. Presented by DogNation.com, this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Here's your host, Brandon Adams. I was telling our video audience a couple of minutes ago, at least our first and 15 audience at DogNation.com, Dog Nation app, Monday after the Super Bowl, never the 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 most spry you probably feel. I come in today a little little uh, you know little, little little scruff on the beard. Didn't shave this morning. You know, kind of uh, trying to get as much sleep as you possibly could. A little bit of a late night last night. And I mean, the game didn't get over super late, but you know how it is. Super Bowl. A lot of people think the Monday after should be a holiday, or they should move the Super Bowl so it coincides with a holiday like President's Day or something like that. Maybe one day that'll that'll happen. Moving it to Saturday. That's even been talking about. Either way, though. A lot of Georgia fans, whether you maybe got a little less sleep than you sometimes get or not, you show up to work this morning feeling pretty good because the dogs factored very heavily in the outcome of this game last night as the Kansas City Chiefs win again. Now, we're to do a lot of Super Bowl stuff on the show today. We're going to bring on a guy later on who won a Super Bowl, uh, a former dog. That's always a fun thing to do here on a Monday. We'll get to that here in a moment. I want to give McCole Hardman his just due. We'll do that here there as well. Can I do, though, uh, a little just sort of basic sports talk before we get there, though? Because it's the kind of thing where everybody in the world was watching this last night, especially as it kind of got down to the sort of pivotal moments. What started off being a little bit of a sloppy, ugly game kind of turned into something that I think most of us will remember uh, probably for a very long time because we saw history really take shape. The one thing I told you last week was, you know what, I'm on San Francisco in the game. I feel like there's a little bit of a heat check against the Chiefs here. Not quite ready to put Mahomes in the Tom Brady category. That sort of means that perhaps, you know, the idea he's going to win another Super Bowl and kind of lead the Chiefs to back-to-back, that seems like a little too much here. Kyle Shanahan, more on him in a moment, sort of feels like he's not the kind of coach as smart and you know savvy as he is to lose three times in the Super Bowl. That sort of feels like the wrong vibe here. It just sort of felt like a 49ers win. That's obviously not what happened. Wrong about that. And yet, I think you also now have to sort of make room in that category of all-time great quarterbacks. We saw Patrick Mahomes, if he wasn't in that category already, we saw him join that group there last night. That Whether you're mostly a college football fan, mostly a Georgia football fan, almost everybody watching the Super Bowl, and what we saw last night was more than just a normal football game. It was kind of a historic moment in which Patrick Mahomes left whatever tier he was in to move to that kind of highest tier this is one of the the legendary athletes of my lifetime now that he's led the Kansas City Chiefs to another Super Bowl. That is worth acknowledging. One more point about the game, just sort of generally speaking, then we'll kind of get into the Georgia part of all of this. Um, a lot of the people who watch us are also Falcons fans. Obviously, the Falcons are the NFL team from Georgia. Not all of you are. Some of you don't like the Falcons because you don't feel like the Falcons take enough Georgia players, but a lot of you are Falcons fans. Let me tell you one thing about last night's game that I think could be pretty good for Falcons fans here moving forward. Kind of a small thing, and it probably won't change to a great degree, but it's going to change some, and you may notice this. The most embarrassing moment in all of team sports, I believe, is the Falcons giving up a 28-3 Super Bowl lead. They have been mocked mercilessly for that ever since then and probably will be for the end of time. But... Now that Kyle Shanahan has lost another Super Bowl as 49ers coach, and now that Shanahan is a part of another overtime Super Bowl loss, there have only been two. Shanahan's been a big factor on the losing side in both of those. Watch this and see if you don't see this play out just a little bit. Just notice this. Watch this. Some of the stuff related to 28-3 to is going to have to be owned by Kyle Shanahan a lot more moving forward. It used to be that was Atlanta's to own all by itself. And Shanahan, one of the reasons why a lot of Falcons fans don't like Shanahan is because he sort of bounces out and goes to San Francisco, and it seemed like he left the organization with that mess. Now moving forward, I believe that Shanahan's going to own a lot more of that. I think that's kind of an interesting kind of subplot to that, that I think now that Shanahan has failed in the Super Bowl again, his failure not running the ball with a lead as Falcons offensive coordinator way back then is going to become a little bit more a part of his resume, and he's going to have to sort of share the burden and the blame for that along with the Falcons organization overall. But now, to sort of zero in on the Georgia part of this, how great was it to see McCole Hardman get the game-winning touchdown in all of this. And he's got really a very good personality. This is one of the reasons why, you know, this morning already 
We've seen him on the Today Show. We've seen him on, I think, CNN, Good Morning America. He's sort of making the rounds. And even going back to his time as a Georgia Bulldog, prior to that as an Elbert County Bulldog, McColl's just always had a really fun, good personality. So not everybody likes the sort of morning cable TV or broadcast TV interview where you sort of leave the realm of sports. Now you become a little bit of a household name with people who don't spend a lot of time watching sports. Not everybody likes that. Not everybody handles that well. But in the case of McColl Hartman, I do think he sort of handles things like that really well. I think I think McColl is really good at that. In fact, I want to play a little bit of a, this is audio, not video, from the Today Show here this morning where McColl does a really good job of, of telling the story and also being very open and honest about the fact that the magnitude of catching the game-winning touchdown in the Super Bowl was almost a little bit too much for him to process in the moment. This is very human. This is very real, and I think it's great. Dog fans loved it for McColl last night. Here is how he told the story early this morning on the Today Show, courtesy of our friends at NBC. Hey, man, it feels great. Uh, that, that indescribable feeling. Um, yeah, that's all you really can say about it. It definitely feels great. Great from Patrick Mahomes that you kind of blacked out. Is it coming back to you now? Do you really <laughs> not remember that key moment? I don't remember none of it. Like, literally, I when I caught the pass, I, I blacked out for a second. It's just like, I guess that the magnitude of the moment just like, like got to me. But all I can remember is after I caught it, I just seen Pat running to me like, you're a champion. I'm like, oh, we won. Okay, bet. And I started celebrating. So I definitely don't remember nothing after I caught the ball. That kind of stuff plays so well on NBC. Most of the people watching that show, not sports fans. They don't really know who McCole Hardman is. They just know he was the hero in the game that they were watching last night. When McCole tells that story that way, I just think that, I mean, that makes for him a lot of fans. And I think in the case of Hardman, that's really well-deserved. I'm so happy about seeing him get his moment. And, boy, what a career he's kind of put together here. It's a fun thing to be able to see. The other thought that I kind of have on my mind about McCole Hardman as it relates to that is, y'all, I don't know. His time at Georgia starts to feel like kind of a long time ago now, right? I mean, this is class of 2016 for UGA. Kind of amazing that we've been watching the Kirby Smart era now sort of play out, that those early days of the Kirby Smart era sort of feel like a little while ago now. McCole Hartman obviously a part of those. But when you think about McCole, what he's kind of become in the NFL, it's also important to remember something here. That he, as I said before, is a part of the class of 2016 for Smart. That was Smart's rookie class as a head coach, a guy who had never coached a game at that point in time, was doing double duty still as Alabama's defensive coordinator, and Hardman was a part of that first class that he put together. You can make a case, and I believe that I'm right about this, that's the best class that any rookie head coach has ever signed. In fact, it's gotten much harder to do that as a rookie head coach now, so we'll never see that feat matched. And I think prior to Kirby coming to Georgia, 2015 turning into 2016, we had never seen anybody kind of be in the top 10 like that, having never coached a game before, trying to do double duty, but he put a great class together. A lot of those guys didn't really kind of pan out the way you perhaps wanted them to. That's 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 true, but it was still the kind of class that sort of signified what Kirby Smart could be at Georgia, the kind of thing that other sort of recently new SEC coaches have really not been able to match, and therefore they haven't kind of gotten their career started because of that. Smart obviously did. So when you think about the the great moment from McCole last night, I know Georgia fans are enjoying that. You know, think about those early days. Try to go back pre-national championship. Try to go back pre-SEC championship that Georgia won in 2017, making the college football playoff. Go back to when, like, Kirby Smart was a head coach, or, or should I should say becoming a head coach for the first time. All of this sort of seems faded now because of how quickly Kirby kind of marched his way towards glory. But way back then, none of this was a guarantee. And there were some fans who were wondering, some media who were wondering, should Georgia really be replacing Mark Richt, a coach who's winning 10 games with regularity, with this guy whose only claim to fame is he you know, worked for Nick Saban and perhaps learned from him or you know, whatever else, has a, has, has a reputation for being a recruiter. And yet, in those very early days, Smart was showing you what he could be. McCole Hardman was a part of that. And for some reason, that was just sort of on my mind today. Speaking of 2016, something else was on my mind, and away from McCole here, you know, Malik Herring was also a part of this for the Kansas City Chiefs last night as well. And, look, Herring takes us back to not just, you know, very early days for Kirby Smart, but kind of very early days for Dog Nation when we as a website, as an entity, we're just sort of getting going. This is like in the within the first year of Dog Nation Daily being on the air and 
there was a really fun, we called it our Christmas commitments video. Jeff Sintel really worked hard to put this together. Jake Fromm, Richard LeCant, we'll talk to Jake about that this week almost for sure. They were kind of pitching in on this, and it was celebrating J.J. Holloman and Malik Herring, who committed to Georgia. And last night when you see Herring, you know, winning the Super Bowl, thinking back to where Herring started as a recruit coming out of a great Mary Persons program there in central Georgia to where he is now, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just sort of prone to nostalgia. I'm probably a little bit of a dork when it comes to stuff like that because I get very sentimental very quick. But when you see, you know, these guys, they're all grown up now and they're leading these sort of professional lives. I, I'm sorry. It is very easy for me. Maybe it's because I have a few years on me now, but uh, I, I do want to go back to kind of where it all began for some of these guys. This was a Dog Nation exclusive. Uh, you know, Malik Herring getting ready to announce his commitment. Think about how young he was then and kind of where he is now as a member of the Kansas City Chiefs. If you're watching on video, you'll see it. If you're listening, you'll hear it. When I was a kid and I couldn't choose what I wanted for Christmas, I'd write a letter to Santa. I'd ask for a lot of stuff, and he knew just where to bring me. I need to figure out where I'm going to play college football. What's up, dude? What you doing? Writing letters to Santa. Good luck. Let me know how it turns out. Thanks, coach. Dear Santa, I've been good this year, except between the whistles. <laughs> I was a team leader. Mary Person is still alive in the playoffs, and we're having a great season. I want you to help me out with my commitment. Here's what I'm looking for. I want to play for championships. I want to be a part of something greater than myself. I want to be on a great team. Hmm. What else can I ask him for? I want to play with savages. That's it. I hope Santa remembers the part about savages. So listen, this is back in that era when we were asking recruits to be actors, and like I, I actually feel like uh, Herring does a pretty good job of acting right there. But we don't do a lot of those sort of like dramatic, you know, reenactment recruiting videos quite as much anymore. But back then, there was a lot of acting that was going on in these uh, commitment videos. I think Malik Herring does a pretty good job with all of that. But in the midst of him sort of talking about what he wanted from his football career, you saw him type it out on the. If you're watching a video anyway, type it out on that little letter to Santa Claus. I want to play for championships, and then. Lo and behold, last night, and we'll show this to you, what an amazing moment on CBS at the conclusion of the game where, you know, Herring, who once said as a player getting ready to leave Mary Persons that he wanted to play for championships, there he is, hugging his mother right there on the football field. She's obviously, you know, overcome by emotion, as you would understand, and Herring himself obviously aware of that moment. I apologize to our radio podcast audience. You're not seeing this, but it's worth checking out to find it. If you want to click our video just for today, it's an amazing thing. And I'll tell you my, my, my thought about this just real quick. Obviously, the Super Bowl last night was in part about the fame that some football players create for themselves by playing this game. We just did a couple of minutes off the top on Patrick Mahomes, what he is. Obviously, the entire world, my eight-year-old daughter included, knows who Travis Kelsey is now. There is a certain aspect of the game that can produce a lot of fame. But that's not always the crux of what football is. To me, Malik Herring is a football story. Yes, he was a four-star defensive lineman. The commitment video we just showed you gave you an idea of the kind of attention he was getting coming out of high school. But you all know, many of you have been with us since these days. That's not really what Herring's Georgia career was. And I don't say that disparagingly. I'm just saying that he was a role player at Georgia fighting for his spot. And he left Georgia to go be a role player in the NFL fighting for his spot. But he's making a living playing this game. The, 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 the fighting that he's gotten used to being a part of, to, to be a, have a spot and, and, and to have an opportunity, that's just sort of who he is as a football player. And last night, he once again got to celebrate as a Super Bowl champion. Like That, to me, is a really cool football story. That for every Patrick Mahomes or Travis Kelsey or whatever else, you know, in terms of like household names, super famous type people, the actual game is played by football players who do it for very little fanfare, very little glory, but they make a living playing the game. And that, to me, i got to say, is kind of beautiful. And it's fun to go back and think about the video for – for Herring when it all started. And it's fun to go back and look at McCole Hardman, kind of where he was coming out of Bowman, uh, Georgia, and an Elbert County Bulldog playing there in the Granite Bowl. Last night he's playing at Legion Stadium in Las Vegas. It's just, it's just an amazing success story of coming from perhaps sometimes humble roots and being on the biggest stage of all and just showing out in such a clutch way when it matters most. I just love this game. I obviously have great affection for a Georgia football, and I am so, so proud to see Georgia so well represented 
on what turned out to be a very memorable Super Bowl last night. My name is Brandon Adams, and this is Dog Nation Daily. The daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. We're presented by Pella Window and Door of Georgia, and we are happy to have you with us. No matter how you get to us today, live on video across all platforms at 10 a.m. We've been in the morning for a long time here, and we love to be there. For those of you who are able to join us live, of course, Radio Athens, Sports Radio 963F, podcasts, wherever you find them, uh, including posting the show every day at the worldfamousdognation.com. Our good friend Kaylee Manziel is helping us with that. We certainly appreciate that. Scott Harris, by the way, on the video, reminding us that Charlie Warner was in there a lot last night for San Francisco, as was Chris Conley there as well. The NFC side of this had some dogs there too. So fun day to be talking about the Super Bowl and fun day to be talking about Georgia football. And we would not be able to do any of this. We'd just be sitting in the rain right now if it was not for our friends at Pella Window and Door of Georgia. They have been really, really loyal and proud partners of ours for a very long time, and I am so, so appreciative of that. And the other thing I appreciate about Pella is, is that it is my job to tell the stories of the sponsors who are a part of our program. And it is so much easier for me to do that when I genuinely believe in the quality of what it is that I'm talking about. In the case of Pella Windows and Doors, I have seen this for myself. I've been to their experience center there in Duluth. I've talked to their Pella experts, the entire team there. I know how devoted and dedicated they are into really creating an experience for you that's going to be unparalleled. And that's why it's so easy for me to sit here and talk about this on a regular basis because I know in a time like this when it's sort of windy and cold and kind of nasty, uh, you want that stuff to stay on the outside where it's supposed to be. And those, you know, really well-sealed and just sort of substantial product like the Pella windows and doors, that's what it's all about. Plus, they look better on the outside. That's great for your curb appeal. It's a great way to be a good neighbor. It's just a, it's just a really good way to take the best possible care of the thing that probably matters to you the most, both in terms of your financial investment, but also your emotional connection, and that is your home. And that is what Pella Window of Door of George is all about. So you can give them a call today, 678-638-1429. That's 678-638-1429. You can also uh, find them PellaofGA.com slash DogNation. That's PellaofGA.com slash DogNation. And take advantage of great savings right now. Between now and the end of the month, February 29th, you can get 10% off Pella projects and 0% APR for 36 months. So make sure you check out Pella Window and Door of Georgia today. Great to have them here today on Dog Nation Daily. All right, we've got John Stinchcomb here coming up in just a moment. Prior to that, I do want to go around the doghouse. And I want to step away for a moment from the Super Bowl and kind of focus in on something else because as we start to look ahead to the 2024 season, I think if you're a Georgia fan, and really any kind of college football fan, especially of a top SEC or maybe Big Ten team, but for like any college football fan, I do believe there is a need to kind of recalibrate expectations for what your team can do for this upcoming season. And in the case of Georgia, I would say that's especially true. Fan Duel has put out, and I love this time of year when this stuff starts coming out for the very first time. Fan Duel has put out its first round of like win totals for the upcoming season. And I want to show you these on the screen. We'll talk about some of the other SEC teams here in a moment. But it's the Georgia side of this I want to look at here right now. We'll show this on the screen. Uh, when you look at FanDuel here, you see Georgia sporting a lower win total than you're used to seeing them have. And we would say in terms of the talent that Georgia brings back, it is not dramatically different than what Georgia has been bringing back the last couple of years. But for Georgia, whose win total a year ago is 11.5, to see Georgia now be sitting at 10.5, that is not, as I said, a reflection of, of an odds maker like this, what they believe that Georgia kind of has returning, what it is is a reflection of the schedule they believe that Georgia's playing. And we know this by heart by now. It's a neutral side game against Clemson. It's a road game at Texas. It's a road game in Alabama. It's a road game at Ole Miss. All of you know those SEC teams thought to be the best in this conference. And it is therefore a Georgia team that is not expected to go undefeated. We haven't seen Georgia lose a regular season game since 2020, but the odds makers here are saying that it's far more likely than not that Georgia will lose a regular season game here this year with a season win total. This is your regular season games only, of course, but a season win total currently sitting at 10.5. Now, as we've told you, FanDuel's also got some odds up on these sort of big Georgia games. Georgia's a favorite individually in all of them, a two-touchdown favorite against Clemson, uh, a point-and-a-half favorite against Texas. They're three-and-a-half-point favorites against both Alabama and Ole Miss. 
But the thing about odds is, even though you're individually favored to win all those games, you are not collectively favored to win them all. And so the expectation here is that Georgia's going to lose a game at some point in time over the course of the regular season, at least one game. 10-2 and two probably still get you in the playoff. And I just think that, you know, that's a little bit of a different feeling for us who are Georgia fans, but it's also a little bit of a new era, I think, coming to college football. You know, you look at last night, Chiefs and 49ers. You know, there was well, At one point in time, the, the Chiefs were, what, like 9-6 and six here this year? You know, this is a team that stands on top of the professional football world, but they lost several times here this season. Both these teams, Niners and Chiefs, both took a pretty bad loss on Christmas Day, right? So as recently as a couple of months ago, you know, we're sort of looking at these teams not quite looking the part of a champion then, and yet it all changed, obviously in the case of the Chiefs, you know, January forward, where they marched their way to a Super Bowl. I think that college football is going to start feeling a lot more like that more frequently. We are kind of conditioned, especially those of us who sort of grew up through the 80s and 90s, that the idea of a college football national champion is something close to perfection. Lots of undefeated champions. In fact, that's kind of the expectation we have for a college football national champion, a team that's capable of going undefeated. If you went undefeated against a power schedule, even if you weren't quite playing the best overall teams, well, that must be, you know, the kind of thing that makes you deserving of a championship. We've just had a really strong correlation in our mind between college teams and undefeated records. But if you start looking a little deeper at some of these fan duel win totals, including Georgia sitting at 10.5, that is not the expectation anymore. So, how well will Georgia navigate this tough schedule, and what will the end-of-season record be? All of that is to be determined, but the expectation right now is more regular season losses for teams like Georgia and the other top championship contenders. A little bit of a new landscape around college football here right now. That is Around the Doghouse here today on Dog Nation Daily. When we get into our cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean, a little later on, I'm going to look at some of those other numbers around the SEC because I do think there is some of that that is probably worth kind of diving into because there's kind of a glut of teams sort of around that sort of a a similar area, which could make for uh, some tough sifting uh, as you try to make sense of the SEC here this season. But all of that is coming up a uh, little bit later on. Uh, Jackson Ricketts also shouting out Robert Beal, who was also part of that for the 49ers last night. So as we said before, a lot of Georgia representation in the Super Bowl. And speaking of Georgia representation in the Super Bowl, a guy who knows all about that, who once represented the dogs very well on his way to a Lombardi trophy and a Super Bowl ring, that is our buddy John Stinchcomb. So what do you say today we keep this conversation going as we bring him on Dog Nation Daily, presented by Pella Window and Door of Georgia here today. Athens and across the SEC or wherever the recruiting trail may lead. Here's a DogNation.com insider. John, I said this before you joined us. I love having you on the Monday after the Super Bowl because I think you're the only person I have in my life who has a Super Bowl ring. I think that's true. Um, And you certainly have one of those. So your voice on stuff like this, obviously really important. I said a moment ago that I believe last night was more than just a football game. I do think it's the kind of thing that we ought to remember for a long time because I think it was Patrick Mahomes sort of leaving one category of player and kind of moving his way into that sort of revered, iconic, you know, you put him in the Joe Montana category, you put him in the Tom Brady category, whether he's not quite Brady's equal or not, he is in that tier, he lives in that neighborhood. I thought last night was a historic game because of the fact that Mahomes really left all doubt that this is one of the great special players we've seen, not just in pro football, perhaps in all of team sports in my lifetime. What did you think of last night's game? I thought it was their mark of a dynasty, right? You look at the Joe Montanas and Tom Brady's and what they were able to do, and they created the atmosphere that allowed for dynasties. I heard you talking about, you know, some of the earlier games and uh, it's, it's about ceilings, and for Kansas City, their ceiling was as high as anybody's. It, you know, there were some games along the way where they didn't play, um, you know, championship caliber football. But when it mattered most, you know, they beat Baltimore, they beat San Francisco, they beat the two number one seeds in the bracket, and it's due to play by their superstars. I mean, Patrick Mahomes is one of those guys in this era that you're going to look back and say, "I got to watch him play," and. Uh, that's fun to to kind of watch and be a part of. And last night was one of the you know quintessential moments for Patrick Mahomes, where you're going, you can't count this team out. I know there's plenty of folks in this state that are aware of Kyle Shanahan's track record with a lead in in a Super Bowl, but 
uh, when you're playing against Patrick Mahomes and Tony Romo said it ad nauseum that you can't count him out. And that's because time and time again, he steps up in the moment and makes the plays that, that count. How much fun is it to see McCole Harbin have the moment that he had a, you know, I was fairly unemotional about the game overall, but when McCole has the big catch, well, I'm you know kind of jumping up into my seat or at least certainly leaning forward in my seat after something like that. I also think that McCole's got a great personality. And so if there's anyone sort of built to introduce himself on like today's show and, you know, CNN and all these places that a guy like that gets to go be on a Monday morning like this. McColl, I think, is just good at that kind of stuff. So how happy were you were for him to kind of represent UGA, represent Elbert County, just represent, you know, Georgia, the state, uh, the university, the way that he did with that game-winning touchdown catch last night? Oh, yeah. Georgia was well represented, not only by McColl, but also Chris Conley. He looked throughout the game and Georgia was making its mark known. You know, it's a weird stat that that I saw that Alabama has never scored a point. An Alabama a player that graduated or came out of the University of Alabama has never scored a point in a Super Bowl. And now Meikle adds his name to the likes of Terrell Davis and Heinz Ward and Fran Tarkenton and Sony Michelle. So uh, it was great to see a dog be the one to kind of cap the victory. Uh, like you, I didn't have a horse in the race, so I was able to sit back and hope for an entertaining game, and that's exactly what we got. What does it feel like to win a Super Bowl, John? You know, when you look at McColl and we showed Malik Herring, and they've obviously had experience with that before, but to me it just seems like such a different platform to play the game on. You know, for the most part, players have helmets on, there's 11 guys in the field, you can kind of play the game with some anonymity, but it's sort of hard to have that on the Super Bowl because they're, I mean, last night it sort of felt like there were like 200 million people watching it, whatever the uh, the ratings end up being. It just sort of felt like the entire world was watching this at the end and played in a, you know, a, a close Super Bowl there as well, the kind of thing that people were talking about and debating the next morning. You guys had the uh, the onside kick, right? And, and some of the things, you know, f- you know, from that game there. You know, what does it feel like to go from being – a football player playing in a game to playing in the game that the whole world is talking about the next day. Yeah, I don't think you realize the impact that it's going to have. I mean, my brother played in a Super Bowl, and you know, I've heard him introduced a number of times, and somehow that gets left off the list. Mm-hmm. But yet, every time I'm introduced, it's Super Bowl champion. So the fact that you know San Francisco is that close, that little margin of error is so small, but yet makes a huge difference. I mean, you look back and um, uh, for all these guys, for Malik and, and for McColl, uh, having won a Super Bowl, it is, it is, you know, I hate to make it bigger than it is, but it can be life-changing. The yeah. opportunities that you get um, that come from it, the experiences that come from it um, are unlike any other. And, you know, it, it doesn't change your life. It won't save your life by any means, but it certainly will provide opportunities and platforms uh, that you never saw coming. And it's a special moment. I know last night they were able to celebrate. And for some, it was you know familiar territory. I think uh, you know, there's plenty of representation on the Chiefs that were a part of not only last year, but a few years back. So they've been down that road. But there's some other guys where this is their first experience of it, and there's nothing quite as sweet as, as winning a Super Bowl. Uh, yeah, I mean, it reminds me of what you're saying of one of the great lines from John Madden back during his legendary broadcast career where he would say that the biggest gap in sports is the difference between being a Super Bowl winner and a Super Bowl loser. And, you know, as you know, kind of seeing Atlanta kind of be in that spot and come up short a couple of times, it is true. It's such a hollow feeling to be the – pro football runner-up, and it sort of seems like you ought to have bragging rights over 30 other teams because there are 32 teams in the league. 30 of them couldn't get to the Super Bowl. You at least got there, and somehow it's not that. Somehow, you know, it is this thing of you got so close to tasting it and didn't get there that there is that thought of, as Madden said, the gap between winning and losing. I think we see this in college football, too, for teams that that get to a national championship game or a college football playoff and don't win it, that that there's just such a huge gap there as well. Thankfully, Georgia doesn't have to worry about that. But the gap between getting to the big game and then losing it is is really a chasm, isn't it? It's huge. And you think you can ask any resident of Buffalo, New York, for all those years where 
you know, they became the runner up perennially and what an amazing accomplishment, but nobody really recognizes the accomplishment. They recognize the fact that they fell short year after year. And, you know, it's the brutality and reality of sports. It's, you know, we like to laud the champions, not those that got really close. And for San Francisco, you can't get any closer. I mean, you had a lead the entire game. You take it to the playoffs. You have a lead there. And yet it's going to be a storyline of Kansas City and their continuation and building of a dynasty. So it is a huge chasm. And, you know, John Madden's the one who, who he knows it best because he got to see it from every level as a as a player and a coach and announcer so um you know they they know guys know that have been around the game for as long as as many have that that's a big difference between playing in a super bowl and winning one john before we get back to our questions i need to correct myself on something i'm being called out by our video audience rightly so earlier i said that uh, mccall hartman played for the elbert county bulldogs mccall hartman played for the elbert county blue devils not the bulldogs elbert county's the blue devils <laughs> I want to appreciate no boost on YouTube for reminding us of that. Very important clarification there. I apologize to those who like to congregate the Granite Bowl on Friday nights for uh, not getting that nickname uh, correct. So, John, every now and then you got to let people sort of call you out for the error of your ways. I certainly deserved that for that. Well, I like the fact that you can get it cleaned up and we can honor Elbert County the way it's supposed to and their Blue Devils and uh, their claim to fame because – you know, that matters for a lot of folks. It sure uh, does. I've been mistaken for b having played for Brookwood. And oh, no. That's as good. a Parkview Panther, I mean, that's almost like a, a cuss word around our house. Yeah, so you know, I can understand it. You definitely don't want that. Let me uh, shift gears back to what I was talking about just before you joined us, which is some of those season win totals starting to come out. I love this time of year. I love projections. I love anything that sort of sets us up for a fun college football conversation. We see the Georgia win total. This is regular season only right now sitting at 10 and a half. That's a game lower than it was a year ago where Georgia was at 11 and a half. And Georgia the last couple of years, last few years has sort of commonly been projected around that 11, 11 and a half, you know, type mark, essentially, you know, the idea if it's like undefeated or perhaps one loss, and that's kind of the, the only sort of expectation. But when you kind of move that down to 10 and a half and, realizing that pretty much everybody's about a game lower right now than it would have been a year ago. To me, that's a reflection of the anticipation of the top teams in college football all playing tougher schedules. Not everybody necessarily. I would say that Ohio State's, Ohio State's schedule not is quite as tough as some of the others. And I would say then in the SEC, LSU, a little bit of a break. But most of the teams are playing tougher schedules. And for Georgia fans, this is, I believe, John, a little bit of a recalibration. When you see projected win totals lower than they were a year ago with the talent level not dramatically worse than it would have been a year ago, that leads you to believe that, oh, expectations are Georgia playing a tougher schedule and more likely to take losses because of it. Where does that land with you? Well, it's breaking news. Uh, college football is changing and evolving as we speak. So, I think the years where you have the undefeated national champion uh, are going to become much more sparse. Uh, that's just the reality of the landscape that we play in. Now, the good news for fans is I think we're going to get more meaningful regular season games. The bad news is it's not going to be an undefeated Georgia perennially, uh, even though they're we're in the heyday of this era and can perennially one of the teams that's vying for a national championship. I think, uh, you know, the reason why the adage is any given Sunday and not any given Saturday is because there's been a great uh, parity. There's been a great gap between uh, teams and, and their capabilities uh, in college landscape. And, and that's kind of because of the change in, in regular season schedule, but also the expansion of college football playoffs, I think it's going to mirror much closer to what we see in, in the NFL, which more meaningful regular season games or better competition games, but there's also a little bit more margin of error. So, you know, a, a Kansas City team that loses six games out of the first 15 still has a chance to win a, a – uh, world championship, whereas a, a good high-level college team that lost twice in years past would have no chance at being a national champion at the end of the year. Uh, now we're going to see a little bit um, something similar to what we've seen in the NFL where you know we're looking at the highest ceiling, maybe not the most consistent teams throughout the season kind of percolating to the top by 
the college football playoff time. Yeah, a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, I mentioned this a moment ago that you look at a team like the Chiefs, you know, and this happens in pro football all the time. There were lots of moments during the regular season in which I think we were most, those of us who were even paying any attention to the NFL, were mostly resigned to, this doesn't really kind of feel like a Super Bowl team this year for the Chiefs. They may not quite be at that level. They didn't have a ton of playmakers showing up, making plays, and you know helping Mahomes out very much. It just sort of seemed like they were destined to to go home at some point in time in January. In fact, they've been underdogs a lot through this playoff run here. The point is, is they became good when it mattered. I think college football, John, is going to be a little bit more like that, where the eventual national champion, whether it's Georgia or somebody else, we may have more time during the regular season. We sort of think, well, this team doesn't look much like a championship team, but it's going to be about making sure you're playing your best football at the most important time. This may be one of those ways, in other words, that college football does start to resemble the NFL a little bit more. It's about being hot and about being kind of well-constructed for the stretch run at the end of the year and not necessarily about being dominant week to week the way that you know some championship teams have been in the past. Yeah, and I think for Georgia fans, we're not going to cry over spilt milk here, but if you give last year's Georgia team a chance to play in the in the playoffs, I don't think there's a team that uh, would feel real excited about going up against the dogs, Alabama included. So, you know, I think it gives you a little more space for, for you know, that slip-up. Georgia probably played uh, not their best game against Alabama. We can all agree upon that, but – if you get let them into the playoffs like they would be in any future year, then no team wants to face them. And I do think it's about getting hot at the right time and having the highest ceiling. And you look at Kansas City this year, and they didn't always have stellar performances. But uh, if you get hot and you play high-level football, which they were certainly capable of, at the right time, you end up as champs. And I think that's what we're going to look forward to in college football, there's a lot that you change and there's, you know, you're going to have to let go of some things. And, and the idea of an undefeated regular season as you know a, a standard or a benchmark probably is a little bit less realistic moving forward. But being able to compete when you've lost one, two uh, big time games and still have a chance to be a champion is very much on the table now. So. Um, you, you got to take the good with the bad, and there's plenty of things changing about college football that we all are adapting to. So let me make one more small point about this. Here's the other thing that I think is going to show up in fans' lives in the future. I think that Georgia fans are going to need to get used to doing a lot more scoreboard watching. You know, we have had formats similar to the SECs in both the Big 12 and the Pac-12 last couple of years in terms of how you make those conference championship games. It's not divisions. It's the teams with the best record. And I can tell you, as someone who loves college football and follows this closely, you can get pretty late in the year, the last couple of seasons, of both the Big 12 and the Pac-12, and have a number of scenarios out there for who's going to make the, the those conference title games and who needs help to get there. And if this happens, this happens. There are a lot, it's almost like trying to follow, once again, how you make the NFL playoffs. So there's just like nine different variables depending on how the results play out. That's not really been how the SEC has been because of the divisional play. You know, Georgia's had this thing wrapped up almost by early October, you know, a couple of times where it's really clean, it's really straightforward. If you beat this team, this team, this team, you're just sort of going. Well, not only is Georgia kind of coming back to the pack maybe a little bit because of a tougher schedule, you know, you do have a handful of teams who kind of have similar projections to the point where you may have four or five different scenarios for who's playing in the SEC championship come November, and obviously you got to win your games. But Georgia may also get used to doing a little bit more scoreboard watching of maybe because you lost to so-and-so back on October the whatever, now you need a little bit of help, and that's just kind of the way that college football is going to be going forward. It's a small thing, but I do believe that Georgia fans need to be ready to not just root for their team to win – but getting used to doing a little bit more scoreboard watching than perhaps college football has required you to do in the past. Yeah, it, it, again, it's becoming more like the NFL model. And I think you, what you see out of the SEC and Big Ten is we're trying to create some of that separation already from the rest of the pack. We will see less games where there are dominant teams that you know walking in that it's – not a matter of who's going to win. It's a matter of is it 35 or is it 40 points? Could it be 50 points, the the score margin? Those, I think, are going to be fewer and far between. And 
like it or not, that's probably going to devastate some programs that get paid to play in those games. But it's also going to make for closer games. And like like you say, that translates to the back end of the season. You're looking across the board and say, hey, we need this team to lose. We need this team to win um, so that we can have a better chance for postseason play. And that's just the nature of the beast and the direction we're heading. Um, so it's very similar to what we've seen in the NFL where, you know, it, those for them week 16, 17 games for, you know, whether it's in your, uh, division or just across the conference, those kind of things matter. And, uh, the model is changing and obviously we're adapting with it as we go. Can I do one final topic with you before we let you go? And I always appreciate your time. I don't want to keep you long. But And this is kind of away from Georgia a little bit. And I'll be totally honest, John. I'll be transparent. I love stirring the pot with Alabama fans and things like that. I, I like that kind of thing, I just especially in the offseason. We don't have anything else to do, so you might as well just sort of pick a fight and kind of go back and forth with each other. But, like, I'm being genuine about this. I don't think it's a good situation that Ryan Grubb, who was hired to be Alabama's offensive coordinator and is now going back to the Seattle Seahawks, it certainly seems timed – to have taken place the announcement that he was going to be Alabama OC, going to go be Seahawks offensive coordinator instead, it certainly seems timed to have limited opportunities for Alabama players based on their rights, 30-day transfer window after Nick Saban's retirement, to kind of make the best decision about themselves about where they wanted to be. They thought they were going to have one offensive coordinator, or they just thought they were going to have a offensive coordinator, and now Grubb's not going to be that guy. And I think we have this we can show real quickly here, John, before I give you a chance to respond. Our friends over at the Next Round Live, which is a show similar to ours based out of Alabama, uh, they had a blurb from the Seattle Times about the fact that, according to how, how the Seattle folks are reporting this, the reason why the Seahawks delayed the announcement of Grubb's hiring there to be their next offensive coordinator was strictly because of the 30-day window for transfers that Alabama was trying to run the clock on that before they let the cat out of the bag that Grubb was going to be there. John, that just seems dirty to me. And that seemed, and I, I, I love the back-and-forth stuff with the fans, and I like kind of fanning the flames, that kind of stuff. But that doesn't mean I'm not being authentic with my opinion here right now. If, if this is true, the way that it's being reported, or the way that it just sort of appears to be, that is not a good look for Alabama. Do you agree with that? Yeah, it's the limitation of players, right? I mean, that's the why, how have we gotten here across college football? It's because we've seen coaches make these kinds of moves throughout the history of the game, and you're going, wait, that's not right by the players. And once again, you know, even in an era where it is very player friendly and there are opportunities, this just kind of reeks of what we've known in the past and what what players have been fighting against is you know at least give us an opportunity to put ourselves in the best place to succeed and that's a that's one of those things where it's just not the case and yes it is dirty pool it is against the spirit of what's trying to be created of players finding the best situations for themselves and you know alabama intentionally tried to create an atmosphere that didn't allow for player movement in an era where there is almost free player movement. So yeah, it's not a good look for Alabama. It certainly put their players in a compromised position where most other players understand where they stand and, and who they're going to be working with and working for. Um, So for the, for Alabama to intentionally delay the announcement of grubs, just so, players options are limited uh you understand the business side of it but it's also just bad business a a quick follow-up uh we're obviously pre-spring practice but this is sort of that kind of like skull session installation time of year beyond just the bad luck and perhaps the nefarious behavior of Bama in terms of how it's relating to its own players how about the delay in terms of preparing the offensive philosophy you're going to use here this season? How much do you think Alabama's hurt on the field by having to go back to the drawing board for offensive coordinator here in what is sort of mid-February now, you know, pre-spring practice? But these are valuable moments in a college football calendar in that kind of first phase of the year. Do you think Alabama's harmed on the field by this right now? I think so, absolutely. I know plenty of coaches uh, that are in the NFL level that were a part of you know, first year staffs. And this is valuable time of looking at, 
you know, self-scout, what do we want to do? How do we want to teach it? How do we want to install things? Um, it's an identity process and you, you develop the identity before you lay it out and, and present it. And if you don't even have uh, a foundation to build from, it's going to be a lot of scrambling down the road. Now, you know, what kind of compensates for that is that you've got really good players that can you know, make up for some of those missteps. But when you talk high level football, you're trying to minimize as many distractions and disruptions of, of what you're trying to do big picture wise and not having an offense and a philosophy and a, a coordinator, someone who's coordinating all those efforts of, Hey, I want to, I want to look at this. I want to figure out how other teams are attacking certain schemes and what schemes we want to use based on the personnel we have. These are all really valuable days that are behind the scenes and fans won't, won't really know until they see the impacts of them. They don't know, you know, the process that takes place during these days. They just assume that, you know, players are, are working out and getting stronger and bigger. Well, for a staff, they're talking about, you know, here are the guys that we have. What opportunities do we need? What did we do well in the past? What worked against all those questions so that they can put together a plan and an overarching philosophy and approach that they can then teach during spring ball and, and reemphasize in training camp, there's going to be tweaks along the way. But you talk about approach, philosophy, and identity, that's all being developed and cultivated right now behind the scenes with all these coaches. And if you don't have a coordinator in place, you're going to really struggle to, to get up to speed. Can be done, a lot harder to do. John, I love our conversation. I appreciate you joining us here on Dog Nation Daily here today to kind of make sense of a really fun night in football last night and sort of what's next for Georgia there too. So we appreciate your time, and we'll look forward to back having you back here again on Dog Nation Daily presented by Pella Window and Door of Georgia very soon as well. Appreciate you, B.A. Go dogs. Yes, sir. Let's take a look around the rest of the league. This is SEC Through. Yeah, so really fascinating stuff. And John brings up, I think, an important point about the grub thing that I do think is serious and I do think needs to be discussed. Or at least he alludes to it and it kind of leads me to a point. We'll get to that here coming up in just a moment. Prior to that, though, let's go cruise around the SEC courtesy of Royal Caribbean. Now, a lot of you have heard me saying this lately about how much excitement and energy exists around Icon of the Seas and... I think that perhaps you might think I was prone to exaggeration or something like that. But the truth is, is I've never really seen a Royal Caribbean storyline be embraced the way that the debut of the largest cruise ship ever constructed, Icon of the Seas, has been uh, sort of discussed. I'll give you an example of this. So when we were on Icon a couple of weeks ago, they were nice enough to give us some swag. And one of those things was an Icon of the Seas water bottle. Uh, and so this is kind of a meandering story, but I'll get to the point. My daughter's been taking the water bottle to school. My daughter's eight years old. And one of her classmates, as my daughter tells me, said to her, I can't believe you got to go on Icon of the Seas. So even kids right now know what Icon of the Seas is. And how could you not when you think about all of the family fun offerings that Icon of the Seas is all about? You got the uh, Category 6 water park and the six different water slides they have on board the ship. You've got, you know, the fun of going to Perfect Day Coco Cay and all the family-friendly offerings there, the the thrill side of the island, and kind of the cool things related to that. Just a great time to be doing things when it comes to a Royal Caribbean cruise vacation and a great time to be taking one courtesy of our friends at Royal Caribbean and Jessica Slater, a travel agent especially selected for us by Royal Caribbean to help us with our cruise vacation needs. You can give her a call, 770-718-9147. That's 770-718-9147. Nobody knows more about Royal Caribbean than Jessica does. You can also email her, jslater at dreamvacations.com. And the time is now to get those final bookings in for our Dog Nation cruise coming up in April on board Allure of the Seas. Talked to somebody yesterday about to be on Allure of the Seas. Getting ready for a fun uh, trip there on that. It gets me excited about my own trip on Allure coming up. And what makes me so excited about that is the fact that I get to be on board with so many of you. Really looking forward to that. Can't wait for that. Jessica Slater, the one to turn to to get you helped with all of that. All right, so let's go cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean here right now. So we talked a moment ago, Ryan Grubb, Seattle Seahawks new offensive coordinator, had been the Washington O.C., came with Kalen DeBoer to Alabama. There have been rumors 
from almost the word go that he was going to go back to Seattle and be the Seahawks. And the Seattle Times reporting just explicit, matter-of-fact language that the announcement was delayed. Yeah, there you see it. The next round shared this. So what the next round put out on Twitter was interesting details uh, about Ryan uh, Grubb and Scott Huff not joining the Alabama staff, including the closing of the 30-day transfer window. The Seattle Times writes it this way. Though the Seahawks had interest in Grubb from the start, listen to this now, one reason for waiting to make the hire official was to allow a 30-day window for Alabama players to enter the transfer portal to pass. That is as explicitly stated as it possibly can there by the Seattle Times, and that is not a good look for Alabama. Now, let me tell you why I think this matters beyond just the notion that Georgia fans kind of like giving a little bit of a side eye to Bama when they have a chance to do that. As John kind of pointed out, right now college football isn't a fight for its future. And when you think about what the model of the sport's going to be moving forward, as I say before, the biggest question facing the sport is, do you want to protect the idea of the collegiate sports model? Do you want to protect amateurism while also fairly compensating the players? Or do you want to tear down the model and try to build something different? There are some people who only use the, the desire to pay players as cover for their actual true motivation is, which there are just some people who just want to tear down college sports. Some of those people want to do it because they like to tear stuff down. Other people want to do it because they think that college sports is so slimy and dirty and whatever else. They just have a negative opinion of college sports. Obviously, on this show, we don't have that opinion. We think college sports is one of the great, good institutions in all of America. But when coaches behave badly, when programs behave badly, it only gives more motivation to those who want to tear down college sports. It only makes them feel like morally justified in doing so. So if the way this played out, the way it's being described, Alabama players essentially held hostage by thinking they had Ryan Grubb as their OC, only to find out at the very end of their window, no, actually that's not true, then Alabama has you know, behaved badly here. And it will be used by people who just want to tear down college sports. And they don't care what it looks like in the future. They just want to tear this down right now because they don't believe in the in, in, in the coaches and the administrators and the people who, you know, kind of run college athletics. They don't believe in those people. They don't believe them to be good and noble people. And when those, uh, uh, you know, figures behave in a dishonorable fashion, as the Alabama folks may have here, it only gives more cover to those who would just sort of light a match and watch the entire institution burn to the ground. That's what's wrong with what Alabama might have done. Now, Alabama and its offensive coordinator situation is not the only OC discussion taking place this weekend. What a strange story this is. Chip Kelly leaving UCLA as head coach to go be offensive coordinator at Ohio State. Now, this is a story that contains multitudes. You know, on the one side of this, it certainly seemed like Kelly was not that happy at uh, UCLA. This also seems to be more validation what we're seeing a lot of here right now. Coaches not currently happy with the current system. And you can't ignore this. You may not care, but you can't ignore it. That there is something going on here where a lot of coaches are saying, this is just not what I want anymore. And look, as I just mentioned, there are a lot of people who making things hard on coaches is the whole point of what they want to do. They don't like the hierarchy of coaches. They think it's tyrannical. They want to tear it down. And so if a guy like Chip Kelly, a well-paid coach, is so dissatisfied that he wants to quit coaching, to some people that's the point of the entire exercise. They want to make things as miserable on coaches as they can because they don't like the idea of coaches, whether it reminds them of their PE teacher that used to pick on them or whatever else. They just don't like the idea of coaches. They want to tear down that hierarchy if they possibly can. And so when when someone like Chip Kelly leaves the coaching ranks to the eyes of some, this is the system functioning as it's supposed to, making things so hard that, you know, these you know coaches just give up and quit, which is what Chip Kelly may have very well done here. He'd be rumored to be in the mix for all kinds of things, ultimately to go be Ohio State offensive coordinator. This also makes UCLA's transition to the Big Ten look terrible. I mean, UCLA only got the ticket to the Big Ten because they came alongside USC. USC is what the Big Ten wanted. UCLA just comes along with them. And I just think it sort of speaks to the sort of non-serious way in which college football is treated out West. And USC is a part of this too, frankly. 
But college football is just not serious out there. The people that participate in college football are just not serious. If you can't keep your head coach as you move into the Big Ten from going to be an offensive coordinator for one of the teams in the league, then you're just not serious. You're not serious enough anyway. And so this, to me, I think is a huge you know, tarnishing on UCLA, the idea that they have any shot of being competitive in the Big Ten. Perhaps being competitive is not really the point. I don't know. But that's a really, really dark mark on the uh, on, on UCLA throughout all of this. And as far as the Ohio State part of this goes, as we've told you before, there has been a lot about Ohio State's offseason as it relates to this particular idea that has not made very much sense to us. You know, I'm going to repeat myself. The one thing Ryan Day can do is call plays. Like Ryan Day is a an effective college football play caller. Successful developing players in the NFL, not always, especially quarterbacks. Uh, you know, creating the kind of physical and mental toughness that allows for a national championship to be won, so far, no. Creating the kinds of plays that can work uh, in most cases around college football, that's the one thing Day can really do. And yet this offseason, they have seemed hell-bent on bringing in someone else. You bring in Bill O'Brien. He also stays briefly. Now he's head coach of Boston College. Then you go in and bring Chip Kelly, who is clearly a credentialed coach, but I would say someone who has a history of doing things far different than what Ryan Day does. So is this what Ohio State's going to be now? Is this going to be the old Oregon offense, and you're going to have Quinshawn Judkins and uh, Trevian Henderson and uh, Howard, the former Kansas State quarterback? Are they just going to be an option-running style team and kind of getting away from the sort of NFL quarterback, NFL wide receiver brand that has seemingly served Ohio State so well? That part of this is really, really strange. I would also say, even though this feels like the kind of big, bold, win-now type move. I mentioned a moment ago, Ohio State's one of the championship contenders that would seem to have one of the more manageable schedules. So all of this seems to be done with a national championship in mind, motivated by the fact that Michigan just won this past season. But I'm not quite so sure the Chip Kelly thing works out the way that Ohio State fans want it to. First of all, Kelly's pretty strange. Uh, There's that. Second of all, this is not really a guy that has a history of handling pressure very well, and there's going to be a ton of pressure on him at Ohio State, even if he can kind of operate in anonymity because, you know, Ryan Day is the head coach. There are still going to be big expectations of the offense, and functioning really well with big expectations is just not something that Chip Kelly's done very well during his career. So this gets big headlines now. I don't quite know how well it's likely to work, uh, but we uh, will see. Uh, and then finally, we talked about this a little earlier, the over-unders from FanDuel for SEC teams for the regular season. Let me give you a few more of these here right now. I think we have this we can show. Can we show the FanDuel uh, graphic from earlier today? Georgia obviously sitting there at 10.5. You've got Alabama lower than it's been, I think, since 2016. They are at 9.5 right now. You've got Missouri also at 9.5 there as well. We'll probably end up talking a lot about this coming up uh, in, in the sort of weeks to come. Just kind of a glut of teams right there in sort of a similar category. The nine and a halfs are Bama, LSU, uh, Missouri, Ole Miss. A lot of teams kind of right there in that sort of similar category where a lot of things can happen. I think Auburn at seven and a half is pretty interesting because of the expectation that Hugh Freeze needs to do a little bit better this year. Florida's only at five and a half. Look at the schedule that Florida's playing. Do you see six wins in that Florida schedule here right now? Uh, They could be a Pretty easy under, to be honest with you. Uh, Kentucky's at six and a half. A lot of people are going to love the over on that, even with the departure of Liam Cohen because of what Kentucky has added in the transfer portal, not the least of which a couple of big names from Georgia. Um, Texas, the other team joining Georgia at ten and a half here right now. So nothing but national championship aspirations for the Longhorns. Uh, when you think about the big games for Georgia this upcoming year, you know, it's, it's Texas that stands as the biggest. That's the team that was in the playoff. Georgia wasn't. That's the team that has the bigger expectations, higher than Alabama here right now. You know, for all the attention of the fact that Georgia and Alabama have not played very much in the regular season and this being Kalen DeBoer's first league game, it's really that Georgia game against Texas that's probably the marquee game for the entire league here this year. There's a lot to unpack with all of this. We've got more time to do that as the days move on. Uh, but pretty interesting for right now. We'll make that cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. 
And as we wrap up here today, let's do so with a golden shoe, obviously honoring the man of the hour, making his way around all the morning shows, but no more prestigious media opportunity coming McCole Hardman's way than being honored as a golden shoe. And not just any golden shoe, but a golden shoe put together at the hands of our buddy Ryan Walker here, who says congrats to a damn good dog, McCole Hardman, a.k.a. Clutch Dog, the pride of Elbert County, hashtag the Birdcage LLC. That's Ryan's uh, business there. And uh, you see uh, McCole Hardman, three Lombardis, Chiefs jersey. So he, so he has all three of the Chiefs Lombardis. That's kind of a nice, fun thing. Uh, three Super Bowl champs, great graphics celebrating him. Game-winning touchdown last night. Good stuff from Ryan Walker there on all of that. A lot of winning around UGA. None of that, though, around Florida. Lousy, stinking Gators, in fact, have not beaten Georgia in 1,192 days. That's our Gator-hater updater. We'll see you tomorrow, Dog Nation Daily, presented by Pella, window and door of Georgia.